I have a message to share. I'm calling it the forgotten gospel. Um, it's not necessarily uh, my message, of course. I usually try to take from other messages and messages that are applied in my life, and, and then I try to prepare them to share because that's the best way to learn something is to teach it. I, uh, I know I've been struggling over the last six weeks or so trying to find topics and sermons and trying to figure out, you know, how to be the leader of this church and things of that nature. I know the last time I was scheduled to, to speak, I ended up just putting a video up because I just couldn't come up with anything. And I think it was just the uh, internal dialogue, Satan working his little, pulling his little strings in my head. This topic alone, I had difficulties with. I don't think that I'm quite the right person to probably deliver this, but I'll see what I can do. I struggled with it all week and tried to get it prepared. And then yesterday, the devil started playing his little tricks in my head again, and I said, forget it. I'm not doing that one. And I started hurrying up to prepare a different sermon. And I was going to do, because I've been trying to do a, a sanctuary sermon. And uh, so I started to do the introduction. It's going to be a series, but I started to do the introduction. I was like, I'll just do this one instead. I can't do that one. I, can't, I just, it's not going to work. It's not the one that I need to do. So I, I was ready to throw it away. And then I got a call at 9 o'clock at night that lasted an hour. And uh, I guess it... I guess it changed my mind a little bit that maybe this topic is something that I need, that uh, more people need. So I figured I better get over it and I better deliver the message. Now, I grew up in a Sabbath keeping church, but I left that church when I got old enough to not be required to go to the church anymore. It's one of those things that happens pretty commonly with children that grow up in the church. Sometimes parents forget that the kids aren't converted, that the kids don't, haven't accepted the gospel into their lives. We sometimes teach the Bible. I knew the Bible. I knew the Sabbath day was the right day. Every time I tried to go to, back to church or find the place that was right in my in throughout my uh, life, I knew I couldn't go to any other church that wasn't Sabbath day. You're wrong right away. <laughs> and so I knew the Bible. I knew all of those things, but I was still unconverted. I still didn't have the gospel. I still didn't understand. And even now, I'm back in the church, a church. It was a different, it's a different church. But I am converted and I remember a piece, uh, and I, a piece of the gospel really struck me and is what converted me. But even though I understand these things and I, and I was converted and I'm, I'm all in, I'm all about Jesus Christ and I'm all about these things, there was something that still wasn't working. I accepted Jesus. My sins are forgotten. But that next step, this new creation that we're supposed to be experiencing, that we're supposed to be feeling in our lives, the cleansing to become righteous. There's sin in my life, whether it's anger, resentment, ego, pride, lots of different things, overeating, that just I can't seem to shake. Basically, I created this sin cycle, and I think that this happens with a lot of people in the church. You sin. You feel guilty, you repent, you get forgiveness, you sin, you feel guilty, you repent, you get forgiveness. And it just keeps going around and around and around. And where do you get off the merry-go-round? At what point does that cycle turn into a spiral down into hopelessness? So the last couple of months I've been studying and praying and trying to figure it out. I kept stumbling across... Uh, even ex-Seventh-day Adventist testimonies, why I left the church. I'm like, all right, why did you leave the church? <laughs> and, you know, I see that 
Well, at first I thought that maybe they just didn't love God, right? Because it seems like a lot of times they were just like, well, we left that legalist church. Oh, yeah, we're not legalist anymore. So it's like, well, maybe they didn't love God the way we're supposed to love God because if we love God, it's not being legalist to obey. You know, I don't, I don't prove that I love my wife by doing everything opposite of what she says to prove I'm not listening to her. You know, but, but society does that. Oh, a man listens to his wife, whoops, you're whipped, right? So I noticed after reading these stories or watching these stories and looking at them on YouTube and seeing them on these websites that those people loved God and they hated sin, but they couldn't get over it. They couldn't figure out how to get rid of it in their lives. They couldn't, there was something missing. They were on this sin roller coaster or this spiral. And I noticed a lot of them focused on, well, you know, Seventh-day Adventists, they have this, uh, they try to attain perfection. You know, and we can't attain perfection. It's not possible. And they would admit that and they would run off to a different church and they would go to a church that now would just accept their sin. It's all right, do what you want. Go on and sin some more. That's what Jesus said, right? No, he didn't say that, did he? They would, they would forget the peace that Jesus Christ is supposed to be creating this new creation inside us. The problem was that this mirror showed people that were so ugly they couldn't bear to, to, re, to look at them. So they would go somewhere that would put the blanket over the mirror instead of figuring out how to fix the image in the mirror. And that's where I was stuck for the last couple of months is why, why couldn't I find, figure this piece out? So before I continue, I want to just pray. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you for the things that you've done in my life. God, I thank you for being there for me so that I can receive you into my life. God, I just ask that you are here with me now, that in my weakness I can lean on your strength, and I thank you so much for that. God, I ask that you use my mouth to deliver your message, and that you guard this congregation with your angels. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So the subtitle of this is My Testimony Rewind. I know that I've given my testimony once before, but it was kind of a gloss over of how I came back to the church. And I think it was, in some degrees, kind of uh, a pointless testimony in some cases because it just show it was just me talking about how I was led back to the church. I never really felt there was there was still some issues, right? So this to me this whole salvation thing to some degree had started feeling plastic, like it wasn't real. Like you know, okay, Jesus died for me. He, you know, forgave me of my sins, but how come this cleansing isn't happening, you know? And maybe I was just trying to rush things, but I really wanted to understand it. I wanted to see some piece or evidence that it was happening in my life. You know, like I said, I was all in. I was ready to do whatever Jesus wanted me to do, but I didn't want to become that legalist person that I was seeing in ex-Seventh-day Adventist testimonies that, well, I finally just got fed up with it. I couldn't follow the rules. I couldn't do these things. So how was I going to become a new man? Jesus was the one that had to do it, but how do I initiate? How do I, what button do I got to push? Is there, you know, is there something I got to, you know, hit go on? You know, how do you, you know, I, some people say, well, you just got to pray. You just pray, Jesus, you have my life. You know, I, I'll, your will be done. I've tried that for a long time. That didn't seem to work either. So as a part of this, like I said, I'm going to share some of my personal testimony, some of the things that occurred in my life. Here I am as a uh, innocent little boy. <laughs> It's, I think this is somewhere between uh, first grade and kindergarten. Now, I'm not going to pretend my life was just horrible and awful. 
you know, it's, it's, uh, there's a lot of people that have worse lives than I do, but all I can say, it's my life, and this is what, how I feel. Now, this is the point that my mom decided to pack our bags and move in a bus overnight under cover of darkness. We left from Florida to Sparta, Illinois, because, uh, you know, my dad, my, mo- my dad was an alcoholic, and he beat my mom. So, of course, she made that sacrifice for us before we were old enough to pick up on those things and become that kind of that kind of person because we know that kids that are raised in that environment will naturally learn to be that same person they learn to be their dad so we moved to sparta illinois this is a current picture of my grandfather's house this is uh, from google maps this is not how it looked like when we lived there there was a lot of good times that we had at my grandpa's house. He was a a much stronger father figure. He, uh, I remember one time though, there was a uh, tree that I decided to climb. I got up and I climbed this tree and was so proud of myself. I got to the, you know, middle part of this tree and I decided to sit in this tree and I enjoyed being up there and look at me. And I leaned back, and I discovered what a dead branch looks like. There's some that are alive and some are dead, in case you're curious. Well, I ended up spinning around and falling, and it was a pretty good fall. The doctor, of course, said I was lucky because normally people put out both of their arms, and they break both arms when they hit me. I just stopped myself with my face. And I landed on my wrist, hairline fracture. So it was a relatively simple fix. Once they cleaned the dirt out of my nose and mouth and everything else. But as we were headed home, even at a a young age, I had the propensity to start to take all the blame on myself. So immediately I'm starting to get nervous. Like what's my, you know, my grandpa's going to be mad at me. I fell out of a tree. I called all this accidents. I had to go to the doctor. There's medical bills. So I got home and I showed my grandma. And my grandpa, he's out in the shop out back. And my mom says, well, you need to go show your grandpa your your cast. And so I'm like, "Uh uh-oh. So I go out there nervously. And my grandpa, he won't even look at me. He doesn't want to say a word to me. So I'm like, I knew it. I'm... I messed up. I went back in the house. You see, later, I found out that my grandpa wasn't necessarily mad at me. You see, the tree used to be right here. I guess he was really mad at that tree. So he wasn't not talking to me for my sake. But because he loved me that much. And, and a lot of times, a lot of times, I think we misunderstand God's love for us. We think that things aren't going right and that some, he's mad at us or whatever. This is my grandpa in the military. He was a. Uh, pilot. <clears throat> this is my grandpa, my grandma, and my uh, well, my mom's on the left there, or on the right. My uh, my mom's here. This is my grandma. These are my aunts. My uh, grandpa had all all girls before he decided to give up. John, Ashley's always wondering, well, what's the chance we're going to end up with a girl? I was like, well, we can go for it. <laughs> Sometimes single genders run in the family. You know, um, 
I remember my, my mind tends to be wired after this point. Uh, my mind tends to have gotten wired to where I don't remember a lot of the good things. That's one of the few good memories I have. But I remember a few things. I remember building a tree house. I remember my grandpa playing an organ and things of that nature. But there was a lot of confusion and difficulties with having divorced parents. My dad moved to Illinois also because he was from there so that he could visitate, you know, have visitation and things of that nature. At one point, my parents, of course, or my mom and my grandpa, of course, they had the best concerns at heart, but they had convinced me to stop even seeing my dad, you know, and naturally, after what he had done to my mom, I don't blame them necessarily, but me being a kid, that's just my dad. I don't understand. And it was, uh, it was difficult going to ch- church and doing all the religious things. The church I was going to, we did the holy days and all of that stuff, and that was difficult. And then I go to my dad's house when I was going to my dad's house. And of course, him and his whole family, they didn't do anything. They didn't do church at all. So it got even more confusing and difficult. By the time I hit the end of my fifth grade, I believe it was right around the fifth grade, my mom had found a a new husband, which is good. I mean, obviously she deserved it. But of course, this was a newly married bachelor. He didn't have kids. He didn't, wasn't used to kids. He definitely hadn't, had missed out on a lot of the patient building experiences by having kids with two almost teenagers in the house. This was the little house we lived in. Again, this is a current picture, but you can see that little tiny house at the end of the driveway. It's just as small when you get closer. It never gets bigger. It's, it's that big. It really, but that's a quarter mile driveway. I had to walk that every day to and from school. The bus would pick me up at the end. I remember once my, uh, well, the house didn't have AC or heat or anything like that. We had little window units. We'd close up part of the house. Uh, in, the, in the winter, we had a wood-burning stove that we would you know, run to immediately when we got out of bed because it was so cold. When the wind blew, the curtains went with it because it was so... It was a very religious house, very holy. So I remember one point in the living room, I, my, I, me and my brother were arguing. I don't remember what it was about but I was standing up and my brother was on the couch and we were arguing about something my stepdad comes in and and I don't know I think I I think I turned around and I ran into him and he pushed me away and so me being a stubborn brat I pushed him back and him being a very large farmer who also led his own difficult life like to bench 250 pounds just for fun and you know in the in his prime could do a lot more than that took his sledgehammer of a fist and I ended up on my back ended up with a fat lip for a week it wasn't always the best relationship obviously but that was probably the worst thing that actually happened Sabbath and church always made things difficult living out here. I was six miles from town. The whole the town was 6,000 people, and it was the largest town in the entire county. And it was a, it was a church town, right? The Methodist church kind of ran it. They had their own college in there. Um, the whole town was dry. Uh, and here I am, you know, I'm not a Methodist. I'm a, one of those Sabbath keeper guys, you know. And uh, it just didn't make... It just didn't work well for me to have a very much of a social life. I didn't really participate in any extracurricular activities. Everything was on Saturday. The church was so religious that Sunday the church was, or the whole town was shut down. So everything had to be done Friday night and Saturday. There was no uh, options like you have in larger cities where people are doing things on Sunday. Of course, the church I was going to, Worldwide Church of God, we drove an hour to get to church. So there was no, nobody around us that went to the same church even. Now, the best self-confidence building exercise I had was the bus ride to school. Now, I was the first one in the line that actually went to Greenville School for middle school, for uh, elementary school, for those things of those nature. But since we were the county seat, 
we had the only high school, right? Everyone around us had their own grade schools and middle schools, but we had the only high school. So, the, the, like I said, I was the first one that actually went to the other stuff, but everything beyond me, they were, had started going in high school or older. And everything beyond me on my route was this little town called Sorrento. And they made up for the fact that Greenville was dry. So they had a bar on every town and everyone was bred as bullies. And it was a, an interesting experience. I got picked on a lot. The bullies just couldn't wait till I got on the bus because I was the first fresh meat, right? They were all, you know, they grew up with each other, one another, and I was the first one to come onto the bus that was like, oh, yeah, we can, get, we can get him. You know, the green tape they put, you know, they have green buses that are plastic, and they have green tape that goes on them. They would peel that off, and most days that would end up in my hair. That might be why I'm so light on top. It's because I'd always have to rip that back out. I'd get punched and beat, and I'd get wet willies, dry willies, any willies you could imagine. Sometimes, a lot of times I would sit close to the bus driver, obviously, to avoid them all, but then they would crowd the front of the bus, and then I'd have to sit in the back, and then I was really in for it. It didn't really even get better once I got into high school, because now I'm in high school, they're in high school, and so I'm in the same age ranges, and now, you know, it's just humiliating because they're making fun of me and you won't sit back here well yeah because you guys gang up five on one what am I supposed to do but of course that doesn't you know you can't argue with bullies they don't make sense the main thing I focused on was education and learning I knew that I could I was smart so I could figure things out um I figured out that the more I knew and the more I understood and the smarter I was, that more people at least pretended to like me. On test day, everyone wanted to sit next to me, right? <laughs> I remember tests where people would take my answers and write off my answers, and it would end up around the whole class. There was somebody up there with my, my answers. And, uh, you know, the, the pretty girls in school always wanted me to help with their math homework, which means me do their math homework. Of course, I never really learned my lesson that that was all a facade, that it was pretend that after the homework was done and after the tests were done, those friendships were instantly dissolved. It's probably one of the reasons today that I still thrive on knowledge so much. I always want to know the best way to do things. And I want to do that to share with other people. And I tell them, well, this is how you could do it, and this is how you could do it. And then people often, you know, this day and age, think I'm a know-it-all and you know, I'm annoying and everything else. I stick my na nose in business. I don't belong. But to me, that was always the way I got attention. So I just naturally gravitate to that. There was one point in, uh, in uh, high school that I had, uh, of course, we were in Sabbath churches and we didn't do any of the pagan holidays, right? You know, we didn't do any of that stuff. So my mom would make sure that I was, you know, sitting out of Christmas parties and Easter parties and all of those different things. And so now in high school, sometimes they would give a participation grade, you know, did you party good enough? You got an A. And of course, I didn't go to the party. So how would I get a grade? Well, a teacher came up with a great idea. Give an oral speech about why you don't keep Christmas in front of the entire class. That really boosted my popularity right up, you know, t <laughs> just telling them why their holiday is pagan really just took me to the top. At one point over the summer, I had the option to go to the, a church camp. It was the church camp for our church, and we didn't, we didn't have different conferences and things of that nature like we have with uh, We Woke of Woods and the Oklahoma Conference. We just had one big massive one up in Minnesota, and they had all the people bring, come up there and so I thought, well, that's awesome, you know, people that go to the same church, people that have the same experiences as me, I can get along with people, you know, all these things. Well, it didn't work out too well. I went up there and we had, of course, we had boys' dorms, and then every boy dorm had its, a sister dorm, right? And in this church, we were allowed to dance, and... So they would, they would, uh, they right away they would start matching us up with their sister dorm, and they would take us in for dancing lessons. But it was usually formal dancing, you know, like the waltz and the two-step, and you could, you know, you had to ruler in between, you know, and 
everything had to be gauged and hope your step got too close, you know, all that stuff. But this year that I went was the first year that they allowed a new kind of dancing, the freestyle dancing. But they could do it only under the presumption that we followed their rules of a specific way to freestyle dance. So the way they would do it was they would have everyone get in a big circle, right? So I'm already self-conscious. I already feel, you know, pretty much throughout my life rejected, humiliated, all alone. And so I don't like dancing because I don't like being in front of people and risking them laughing at me. And part of the reason why I don't like being up here. (laughs) But in freestyle dancing, we would create these big circles, And at least with normal dancing, you could dance and at least everyone else was dancing so less people were looking at you. But in the freestyle, we'd get these big circles and two at a time, you'd get in the center of the circle and while everyone watched and nobody did anything else, you got to dance. (laughs) Get my groove on. Wife always wonders why I don't like dancing. I'm traumatized. (laughs) Now, at one of these dances, pretty early on actually, we had the dance and it came up, the song that we were allowed to freestyle to. Now, uh, one of the girls asked me to dance and I'm like, no, I don't want to, I don't want to, I'm going to sit off to the side. You know, it's just a big circle. You can go up there and dance with anybody that hops in the center. You don't need me up there with you. And she went up and she got in the circle and whatever. And then as I was one of the only people left, another girl came along and wouldn't take no for an answer and just dragged me in there. Well, unbeknownst to me, later that other girl was very hurt and offended and ended up trash-talking me the rest of the night. None of the girls talked to me for the rest of the trip. They were all angry at me because I was such a horrible man that didn't want to dance with one but would dance with someone else. And then eventually that spread into the guys who would slip shampoo into my water bottle every chance they could get. So usually the first drink, right away every day. So even that ended up being very difficult. I still managed to have a few good memories. There was a three-day canoe trip that was just amazing all through the lakes of Minnesota and up into Canada. Now, I do have an update of the picture. And this picture shows the damage of falling out of a tree and landing on my face. So... Can anyone pick me out on this picture? This is the, the class picture of coming, of coming to, uh, uh, from, this is one we got to take home with us. If anybody can picture me, picture me there, I can do a close-up. That was me. You can see I have the uh, sunglasses, but those aren't even sunglasses. Those are prescription glasses that tint automatically, you know, and then these are, this is 20 years ago, so they never didn't tint. They just tinted automatically, which means they got from dark to darker, and that was it. So it looked like I'm always walking around like an airplane pilot or something, you know, top gun. And you can see my hair made my head even bigger than it is now because I pretty much have a blonde afro at this point. I'm Ronald McDonald with glasses. Ronald McDonald, the airline pilot. So... I think this is another reason why I didn't have friends. I don't know. I couldn't tame the head. Couldn't get all those things right. Now, I had other difficulties, of course, you know, as as awkward as it is in high school and things of that nature. I even asked one girl out one time, and I made the mistake of doing it at the place of work on the front line of McDonald's, and I asked her out, and she's like, well, no, I can't go out with you. You fell out of the ugly tree and hit every branch on the way down which obviously stung because I was like, how did she even know I fell out of the tree? (laughs) By the end of high school, I had plans to attend an affordable state college. I was going to do things the right way and have this affordable school that I could afford and had a dorm and do all the right things. But at some point in time, I met two friends that I probably should have avoided except for the fact that they changed my path and ended me where I'm at now, so for that I'm thankful. But I ended up being coerced to go into Kansas City and going to DeVry University. Now, DeVry is a specific tech school, so I can't, I couldn't, uh, it was very, very expensive. It was like 9000 this is 20 years ago, and it was $9,000 per term, uh, or no, 
$9,000 per year or something like that. It, it was expensive. Yeah, I think it was 9000 per year ter- term. And then well, the first year I was $27,000 in debt. And I was working three jobs at the end of that first year to try and maintain my curriculum and everything like that. And so I ended up leaving after my first year with almost thirty grand in debt and no degree, no nothing to show for it. And because it was a tech school, it, uh, they had bare minimums on everything. So if, if uh, English required three, they only did three. However, when you go to a state college or things like that, they probably do a four credit hour st- uh, English credit, right? So when I tried to transfer, did anything transfer? Nothing transferred because it was always too short to actually count. It was always the bare minimum, state minimums, instead of what the colleges actually produced or did. So even if the three credit hours transfer, I'd only need one credit, but their smallest classes were four credits, so I'd have to redo everything. So at that point, I dropped out of school, and of course I'm figuring, I'm feeling even more of a failure. I'm feeling that I've left, let, let my parents down, my mom was so proud that I was going to school and doing all these things, and here I am dropped out. And at that point, in school and with these new friends that I had that led me off to here, I ended up getting involved with drugs. And this was a thing that, you know, when you're, when you're feeling humiliated and rejected and betrayed and alone, and you don't feel good about yourself, drugs feel that, make that instant feel good And of course, now suddenly I have friends. Anybody else who does drugs, for some reason, they're all your buddies. So I'd finish doing drugs, and then you would come down from that, and you'd feel even worse. You'd feel ashamed. You'd feel like a bigger loser. And then, of course, you'd want to do more drugs to bring you back up. Satan started really playing that game of ping pong in my head, right? He lies to us before we sin, and he lies to us after we sin, and he never lets up. He starts telling you, you're no good, you're no good, you're a loser, no one likes you. So you do things you're not supposed to do, and then after you did the things you're not supposed to do, he said, see, I was right. And so you do them again, you do them more. I fell completely out of contact with all my family. I actually don't even really talk to my mom even much now. She's, we're friends on Facebook, but the relationship's pretty damaged. I don't know. She doesn't reach out to me very much. I don't reach out to her very much. I felt ashamed to even talk to them or, you know, my inner dialogue was all geared towards being controlled by Satan. I was just, you know, I was just, I'm nothing I don't, there's no reason for me to reach out to anyone. For me, I would always lose all my friends. If I did have a friend, I would eventually lose them because I'm not going to reach out to someone and be a burden on that person. And so I'll just wait till that person reaches out to me. And if that person never reaches out to me, well, then the friendship is gone. So it's like one of those self-fulfilling prophecies. You have no friends because you're not very friendly. <laughs> And the devil just keeps playing that little harmonica in your, in your brain. Next few years, nothing of importance really happened. I was trying to struggle and find my place in Kansas City. Except that I know at this point, after all the drugs and after all the letdown and disappointment and all the things that I had experienced, again, I'm not saying my life is any worse than anyone else's, but there were times that There were several times I remember taking a loaded handgun and putting it to my head and trying to will myself to pull that trigger. I never could, obviously, but I do remember that several times I just wanted it to be over. I didn't pray at that point because I wasn't going to church, I wasn't doing anything, but if I did pray, it was just God in this. You know, all it takes is one bus. I can't seem to make myself pull the trigger. It just takes a bus. Now, like I said, a lot of people live through awful things. My life wasn't really that difficult looking back at it, but I can't help the way I felt, obviously. When you're alone, humiliated, rejected, depressed, 
it feels like a, a bottomless pit. It just feels like you're sinking. It feels like darkness all around. God was obviously still in my life. He was, maybe he was, or him or an angel was keeping me from pulling that trigger. He was listening to me, at least to the point of, uh, he planned on ending my misery. Not the way I wanted to do it. Eventually, this person came into my life. When you find someone you can love that loves you back, you start to believe, well, you start to believe, well, this is it. It's all fixed now, right? Of course, Satan doesn't give up. There's always that... He still keeps playing that same old tune. He still keeps saying, well, now you're not good enough. You're not going to keep her. You know, or you're, the worst thing is to think that you're holding someone back, that you're, you're a detriment for being in their lives. I still have those thoughts even now sometimes. And sometimes it's even worse because, you know, I do the responsible thing. I go to Dave Ramsey. So we're out of debt and we have life insurance. And I look at that life insurance policy and I say, well, now I really am worth more debt than alive. That, that this, this, there's this money that could be there. Of course, there's one thing that always seems to change all of that. One of these always changes the perspective real quick. Because I know not being here for him puts him in the same boat that I had growing up. I know the statistics of a child growing up without a dad. I know the statistics of a, dad, of a child growing up with a bad father. So whatever it is, however I've got to do it, I've got to fix this. And that's what I keep struggling with. And that's what I keep trying to figure out. God... When are you, you going to fix this? Having a father, a good father, is so important. And that's why God took on that role as calling us, call, having us call him father. Because he can fill that position. I remember the first time I went hunting, I, uh, the first time I went hunting, I was, I got my own gun. My dad was around. And uh, I got my own gun, and I, I sighted it in. I went out a couple of days later, and I was going to, to shoot my first deer. And uh, I saw a deer, and I was, I was looking at it, and I was praying over it. And I'm like, I don't know if I'm supposed to be doing this kind of thing, God. And So I, I wait for like 10 minutes, because I'm not going to take a shot where this deer suffers or anything like that. And finally, I find the perfect shot, and I take it. And the thing goes down in 20, in 20 yards. I mean, it, it didn't suffer at all. And so I go back to the house again. My dad was around, and he's going to help because he was, he was a supposedly a hunter. He had done hunting. He had done these things, and he was going to help me and be there. Now it's going dark, and we go out there, and he goes with me, and we're going to field dress it and do all this stuff. And the only field dressing experience I had was two videos and a book, which is obviously, you know, very difficult. So I'm trying to take care of it, and I'm getting it all done, and... I get down to the pelvis and I'm struggling and I can't do it and I'm getting frustrated. My dad's deaf. He actually ended up in a motorcycle accident before I was born and he was completely deaf and he uses cochlear implants to hear. So he's walking around me and he's like, just do this and just do that. And I'm like, ah, that's already done and I'm getting frustrated and I'm just like, all right, forget it. And then he gets in there and he starts just hacking away and he's like, just get it done like this. And he's taking meat and he's throwing it over here in the dirt. And he's like, that's good meat. And I'm like, you just threw it in the dirt. So I'm throwing it away. I'm like, forget it. Bury it. I'm going to dig a hole. We're going to bury the deer. We're done. We're done. I'm not even going to do with this anymore. Finally, we went ahead and I, I got back in there and I calmed down and took care of it and got it done, got it back to the house. Called a friend to help me process. And my dad being the quality father that he is, he's telling my friend, this guy over here, 
tell me we're going to bury the deer. <laughs> He's such an idiot. We're going to bury the deer and just forget it. And he's yelling and screaming and blah, blah, blah. Oh, I got so angry. Now, you might think this was a long time ago. This was actually just 16 months ago. My dad's staying with me because he's an alcoholic that got caught, caught drinking again and my stepmom needed a break. So he's up staying with me for three months. And over that weekend, he told like two other people and laughing at me and humiliating me, you know, like, well, this is how he overreacted. I don't want that for Mason. I look at Mason and I don't want to be that kind of dad. I can't afford to keep letting Satan play this game in my head and play, and play this game in other people's lives around me that, that cause even more problems. All my behaviors and sins track back. When I'm angry, when I'm egotistical, when I'm prideful, when I'm abrasive, when I do all these things, when I overeat, when I eat too much, when I don't control myself, all of these things stem back from bad behaviors from, or bad experiences in my life that cause me to be broken. And if, I, if I'm truly honest, I can't have any ill will towards anyone else in my life. Like my dad, I can be angry at him, but he's just as broken. He's acting bad and he's doing things against me, but not because I'm a bad person or that that he's doing it because of me. He's doing it because of himself. My stepdad, that one time he punched me, he didn't do that because I'm a bad person or because I deserved it or because any of these things. He did it because he was broken. He was do it, did it because every time he was in trouble growing up, his dad beat him a lot worse than I ever got beat. And this is, so this, this piece that I'm trying to discover and understand, and I don't have it perfect, this piece is what I'm calling the forgotten gospel. It's so important that we understand and that we grasp this. It's not just a plastic sense of being forgiven. It's where we turn Jesus Christ into a real world, rubber meets the road Savior that we can get the help that we need and that we can start the process of healing. So, what is this forgotten gospel? Well, in Isaiah, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, in Jesus' own words, in Paul's gospel, in the gospel and writers of Hebrews and Peter, over and over we see this suffering that's explained of Jesus Christ. And a lot of times, it's hard for a lot of people in Christianity to, to really grasp that and understand that suffering because it's so ugly what he had to go through. So we, we focus on the cross, but we forget about the suffering. But the suffering is how he relates to us. We tend to tell people that Jesus died for our sins and rose again to give us eternal life. And that's absolutely true. We are not getting to heaven without Christ dying for our sins. But if we stop there, it creates a cycle because we're still broken. We still have the bad experience in our lives. We still have the problems that pop into our heads. We still have Satan playing with the, our little memories. So the cycle just never finishes. It never completes. But Jesus said, I come to suffer and die and rise again. At the Last Supper, again, Jesus says, I'm going to eat this meal with you before I suffer. And the disciples are arguing over who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. They've completely checked out. They, don't, they, they, they miss it. They reject the suffering Messiah. Now, we don't reject it. We understand it. We grasp it. But a lot of times, we seem to neglect it in use of a personal application. We forget about it. It's, it's like a hidden gospel. It's a piece that we don't put enough attention on. Why include suffering in the plan of salvation? Jesus gone, has gone through everything we can possibly imagine. 
He was born to an unwed mother, a blended family just like me, no earthly father, a refugee in Egypt, alone, abandoned, I can relate to that, betrayed by a kiss, abused, physically violated. He was stripped naked and beat, shamed, humiliated verbally, mentally by authority figures, the people that were supposed to be on his side by Satan. He was tempted to perform miracles, tempted to numb pain. He was asking, why? Why, God, have you forsaken me? He was rejected, and he looks like a failure in ministry. This is where we see the rubber meets the road. This is where we see the potential for real healing in our lives. How many times do we hear a testimony and we all say, the testimonies are so strong, the testimonies are so powerful because someone in that audience connects with that testimony. It affects my life. I feel it in my heart. And that's how I bring change. Well, we see these elements in Jesus. Jesus is the greatest testimony of all. And we sometimes miss over that. But Jesus can relate to us. Jesus can be a part of our hearts. You know, Jesus can connect and relate and be there with us. He no longer becomes someone who's just far away, sitting up on a throne and looking down on us. He's very close to us. He's right there beside us. He's got our arm around us because he's been there. Here's the problem that I find most people have in a lot of uh, Christianity circles. I've heard it said that Jesus is like Mr. Rogers with a beard. He's just this big old nice guy. He's up there, and, but he can't really help me. He's up on his throne. He forgives us. But we see all these sinners in church because they think, well, he's this great guy. He's, what, he's the gate to eternal life, but he doesn't really relate to me. So I want to start looking at it this way. Yes, he was divine. Yes, he knew what was going to happen. But still in his humanity, when he became a man, he was humiliated, abandoned, betrayed. In Isaiah 63.3, I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I have, for I have trodden them in my anger, and I trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes. The reason support groups work so well is because we have people that we can relate to. We have people that we can talk to and understand where we've been. A support group for alcoholics know what the triggers are and they understand each other and they know how to help each other. And when you're feeling this way, oh yeah, I felt that way too. I understand that. And so I, we, and we bond and we help each other and we get our, each other through uh, tough times. A, a support group for women that have been sexually abused, they understand the feelings and the emotions that go over their, in their head in different times of their lives and different triggers. And they, again, they help each other out. They, may, they could have been abused at different times of their lives by different people, by different circumstances, but it doesn't matter because the same feelings of, uh, of rejection and humiliation and abuse are still there. Jesus has basically walked in every single one of these shoes. Through His suffering, He has put Himself in the position to relate to all of us, to any of us. He was beaten to a pulp. In Isaiah 52, 14, Just as many were astonished at you, so his visage was marred more than any man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was beat so much they couldn't even tell he was a man. It's said that the, the whips that they used before they beat Christ, before they took him out to carry his own cross to be crucified, was one of these whips that entwined into the, the, the whip was hunks of metal, glass, bones. They would whip with it, and it would just rip flesh off of their back. And a lot of times, people didn't even make it to be crucified because if they missed, it would go around their gut, and they would pull it, and they would be disemboweled right on the spot and die. When I think about that Mr. Rogers in heaven, that old, great old granddad image that I used to have and that a lot of people have, it just doesn't fit. It's not there. This suffering Messiah is not one that is made up. 
When you read, when you have time, you should read Isaiah 53. It's called the Suffering Servant chapter. And in the New Testament, it's the most quoted chapter out of the Old Testament in the entire book. There is no chapter more quoted in the New Testament. So suffering, obviously, is something that's critical. And of course, the disciples rejected it. Every time Jesus said, I'm going to suffer, die, and rise on the third day, they checked out and they ignored it. The disciples were, of course, looking for a militant Messiah. They were looking for uh, someone, Rome was on top of them, and they wanted someone that was going to flip the tables and put Rome on, or them on top of Rome. But the thing they missed was Jesus was there to die for them, but also there to die for the Romans. Now, Peter was there, and he said, I will never deny you. I will fight for you. I'll be there uh, for you. I'll go to prison for you. I'll die for you. And the disciples all said the same thing. Now, was, was Peter and the disciples sincere? Did they really believe that? Did they really think they were going to uh, accomplish that? Well, absolutely. But they were sincerely, publicly, and spectacularly wrong. That's why my sincerity doesn't count. It doesn't matter. It, it's inconsequential. My sincerity is not enough. It doesn't do anything. They had it. It was wrong. It, it didn't work. We need the suffering side of the gospel. The humanity of Jesus is there to connect to our lives. It's strange to think that we don't seem to really focus on this as much as I think we should. We need to really be focusing on this when we reach out to others because this is where the healing is is generated. This really expands on the gospel. Before he died, Luke 9.22 said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests that inscribes and be killed and raised that third day. Here he is saying he must suffer. No, nobody was looking for him to rise. None of his followers believed him. They had just glossed over this every single time. Only his enemies were afraid of him rising. And they were just checking their bets and keeping it, you know, like, okay, we've got to make sure. His followers believed in that militant Messiah so much that this false belief clouded and filtered everything they heard and everything they saw. Now, after Jesus rose, he goes on a journey and he's talking to disciples on the side of the road. And they look at him and say, don't you know what happened? We thought he was the Messiah. Don't you see? Don't you see what happened? And Jesus says, and then he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken, ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? So here he is. Uh, before his resurrection, suffer. After resurrection, suffer. He goes into the upper room and he teaches them the same message. He teaches them this for 40 days on and off. And then he tells them he needs to pray for 10 days. You need to pray for 10 days and get the Holy Spirit. So they come out of the upper room and in Acts 3.18, but those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus filled. So that's the focus, even the the... They, they, the disciples had coming out of the upper room. So is that, does that mean that, that that's what they focused on? That was what they prayed about? And that's what they were, were really, you know, just in tuning themselves to? This is what I was missing. I didn't know how to connect and relate to Jesus in my own life. And then I suddenly realized after doing this study that Jesus has already done everything to relate and connect to me. I don't have to connect and relate to him. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. I always think it's interesting how this is worded. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. So I could say, I could say you have an elder who can sympathize with your weaknesses. But when I say it as a positive positive, it almost implies like I have a choice, right? I, you have an elder who can sympathize but maybe I won't. I can, but maybe I won't. But when they do it in a double negative, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, he's saying there's no choice. Jesus is, 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 it has no choice but to sympathize with you 
That's the way it is. But was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. This is the kind of healing that we need to promote our church. This is the kind of healing that we need internally. The discussion isn't if we're broken. The discussion is how are we broken? Our guests are broken. Our community around us is broken. Satan's been playing this game for a long time. It's right, even right in the communion service. The, here is my body broken for you. The cycle of sin and forgiveness doesn't work. It doesn't provide any hope. It's critical that we take the information, we pray over it, we apply it, we take it to application, we put it in our hearts, and then through more prayer, we become transformed. We experience transformation. Now you remember that, sin of, uh, that cycle of sin and forgiveness we talked about earlier. We all know it doesn't work, but let me give you some examples. In America alone, we spend $60 billion every single year on diets. And at the end of the year, only 5% actually keep that weight off. The other 95% still going around the merry-go-round. I sin, I feel guilty, I repent, I forgive. I sin, I feel guilty, I repent, I, for, I have experienced forgiveness. The only difference sometimes between an atheist and a Christianity is how much guilt they experience. It's reported that 65% of men in church suffer from a struggle with pornography. That doesn't mean whether it's a day or every week or every month. It's a struggle. And that's men in church. You go outside of church and it's even higher, although some of them might consider it's not struggling. How exciting is it for me to share a gospel with others out in the community when I haven't even experienced any freedom in any one area of my life? You know, I accept Jesus Christ, but if I'm not feeling the freedom, then I'm like, all right, let's go tell everyone, come on. I'm not talking about perfection, obviously. We're just talking about a little bit of freedom, breaking away from that sin cycle in just the smallest amount, just to see progress. You know, perfection is something that Jesus Christ can create inside us, but it takes time. And it's that progress that builds hope. I know I'm forgiven. I know I've accepted Christ. I know I have eternal life. But if someone is struggling with shame, guilt, food, anger, pornography, what does it do to their spiritual life and to their faith and hope when they can't get off that cycle? It just steals it away. It saps it. When we pay, pray properly, praying in a, a way that relates Jesus to our lives, we can accept that Christ can relate to us in any of our core sufferings, in any of our core experiences. We can start to see improvement, and that's when hope really starts to take hold and we start getting more fuel and more gas. The levels, uh, I've said it before, the devil lies before we sin. He's the father of all lies. And then he lies to us after the sin. He won't leave us alone. Satan starts to get us to Start wondering, can I really be accepted by God? Can I? So we have to remember that the first time Jesus spoke in his hometown synagogue, what did he say? The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has appointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, recover sight for the blind, set at liberty the bruised, this day, this scripture is fulfilled in your ears. This is Jesus Christ's mission statement. And if, if the fruit of our outreach isn't doing these things, then we need to decide, do we expand our gospel and do we start bringing in the suffering, the whole gospel, and we start helping people this way? The King James Version uses the word receive 257 times in the New Testament. I believe we need to change the language that we use. Sometimes I, pray, I have been praying that, God, please help me to do better. Please help me do this. Please help me do this. Me, me, I need help. I, 
And we really need to change that language to receiving Jesus to do the work for us. God, thank you for what you've done. Thank you for relating to me. Thank you for suffering. Thank you for coming and being willing to do this work for me. When I try to do it and ask Jesus to help me, I'm still the one doing it, which is why I fail. We need to give it to God. We need to let His strength be present in our weakness. Hebrews four fifteen and 16 again. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but, in, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Some people go as far as to say, as, well, Jesus was a man and not a woman. So how can he, how can he, how can it be in every respect? Well, Eve was tempted by a lie and believed it. Adam was tempted by a lie. It was a different lie, but it was still tempted by a lie, and he believed it. How was Jesus tempted? We saw, we saw on the, the slide of all his sufferings, he was tempted in all those ways. Was he tempted to believe that he was rejected, abandoned, betrayed, not good enough, alone, beaten almost to death, nailed to the cross, or did the devil just give him a free pass? Oh, oops, sorry, you're, you're the son. Did the, temple, did the devil believe, tempt him to believe that God had forsaken him? He cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To believe that he was not good enough. Hebrews 2.18, For in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. We need to initially connect people's story to Jesus' story. We need to listen enough to understand people's story. And then we need to apply Jesus' temptations and sufferings and struggles to that story and show them that Jesus can relate to them. And then we need to pray Jesus' story with them and say, thank you, God, for how you've worked in my life already. And doing this, we give an anchor of hope to those people. We start uh, making it 100% Christ-centered. Christ is the best counselor. Delhi has a, has a, a degree as a counselor, but I'd, putting him up against Christ, I'd still say Christ is the best counselor. <laughs> Sometimes we get caught up and we worry about the wrong things. So let's not worry about, are they going to the church on the wrong day? Do they understand the state of the dead? Do they understand the rapture? That word's not in the Bible. Let's help heal them by pointing them to Jesus. And when we lead them to Jesus, Jesus will convict them of everything else. When they love Jesus, they'll be like, hey, why are you going to church on the other day? And they'll come to ask us why we're here on this day. When, when they love Jesus, they'll be like, hey, what's this thing about clean meats? And they'll want to know more about clean meats. And they'll want to follow Jesus Christ. We sometimes talk about those differences like, well, you've got to do this. You've got to do that. If you love Jesus, you've got to do this. And we don't think about why are they broken? Why, do they, why are they offstandish? Why was I offstandish? Fix them the same way you fix yourself. Now, I'm not done with this sermon, but I had to turn it into a series. My wife said I could not preach for three hours today. I said, why not? So I have a, a series on this. And again, I'm not the expert on this. I'm taking a lot of this from a ministry called Straight to the Heart. He's a Seventh-day Adventist out of uh, Fort Worth, Texas. Um, I have some cards for you. They're back there on the corner of the uh, sound booth if anybody wants them. If you don't want them, that's fine. I'll give them to other people. Um, it's, it's a foldable card, and it says, Jesus did not die for your sins. And on the back it says, only. He also died to heal your suffering. And it has a, a, a things we do wrong list, a definition of sin. It has Jesus experienced all of these things. So it becomes like a, a little cheat sheet of how we can work out, reach out and help others. On the back we have Satan's false identity for me and Jesus' true identity for me. It has scripture to back it all up. And then it has a little sample prayer that we can use. So if you want one of those, there's 20 of them or so back there. Feel free to take one. But with that said, we'll go ahead and finish. If you'll bow your heads with me and pray.
Dear Heavenly Father, we, we thank You for the suffering that You had no choice to, but to go through so that You could relate to us, that You made that sacrifice to relate to us, to work in our lives, to show us that You aren't above us, that You were there right beside us, that You're here for us. God, we just ask that You continue to work on us and to continue to be that strength that we can lean on. God, we know that all good things come from You. And as we go home today, we, we ask that You enrich our lives with Your Word and Your truth and Your understanding and inspire us to how to share this message with the community around us so that we can heal more people because that is what this world really needs. And all these things we ask in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.